thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. May God bless the reading of his word. Maybe seated. Will you pray with me? Dear Father, uh, we do just, um, this morning, we, we do want to be a body that just believes and proclaims those, the, the words of your amazing grace um, that we can proclaim um, and trust in and hope in that our, that our chains are gone, that you set us free from sin and death, and um, you've done that through your son, Father Jesus, um, who took upon himself those chains, who took upon himself the slavery of sin, um, who bore the weight of it. Um, but buried it with him and has defeated it by, um, by defeating death, and defeating the grave. And um, we have that hope, Lord, this morning, and we thank you for that hope. Lord, uh, we even see that in your word this morning as we, as we look at what we just read, Lord, that, that, that you have the power to transform lives. And I pray that this morning that um, through, through uh, the reading of your word and um, through looking at it, Lord, that you would transform people's hearts and minds. This wouldn't be just an exercise of, of um, um, just intellect, but also um, our hearts and our, our minds to transform them. So Lord, have your way with us this morning. Um, we need your wisdom on how to see this passage. Would you help us, Lord? We trust you. Your word is, is true and, and active and living. And so Lord, would you edit what I say and, and may what I say um, be glorifying and honoring to you? And, and transforming to, to us as we seek to, to just honor you. So, so God, just have your way with us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can read it in freedom this morning. And, 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 and uh, we just thank you. We praise you, praise you in Jesus' name and, and, and all God's people said. Amen. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Um, I, I said this at first service, I just wanted to put one last plug in for the men's retreat. I, I got an award last year for the last person to sign up. Um, I was 11.59, I think. I signed up, and they called me up, I don't know, and I got a coffee card. So for those of you who are procrastinating, maybe by waiting, you actually get a prize. Um, so so 11.59, shoot for it, you know, get it in there under the wire, maybe you'll get a coffee card out of it. Um, so 
fellow procrastinators unite. Um, um, we are in the book of First uh, Timothy, and uh, as as you know, and and um, just this is the second week. Uh, Dan opened it up last week, um, and I'd encourage you guys to to listen to that online. But um, as we before we go into this, I was I was just thinking about our, our culture that we live in today, and we live in a we live in a culture um, that is obsessed with identity, obsessed with how we identify ourselves. You, you can hear on the news, you can see everywhere that there's people now that they feel that just by identifying themselves as something that that makes them that thing. Um, heard of a person identifying themselves as a cat um, or a little, a guy identifying himself as a five-year-old girl or whatever, and, and, and it's just weird and wacky as if, as if just saying that uh, or thinking that changed you. Um, and we have, we're just, we're just, uh, we live in an affluent culture where we have the time and resources and ability to do a lot of navel-gazing, a lot of introspection, because we don't have to worry about where the meal's coming from uh, tomorrow or today. Um, we have shelter, so we can worry about things like uh, how I feel about the way I feel about that thing, or um, looking at this thing uh, inside of me that, and we spend a lot of time doing that. Our books we read are about... Um, Identity, even in the church, um, and this is not a bad thing to think about our identity in Christ, but um, a lot of times uh, we see books that are all about the, our, our identity, um, but I wonder the ratio of like books about God's identity versus our identity, and, and obviously we have a book, the Bible, it's all about God's identity, and that's why we open it up faithfully every, every week, because, um, because it's much better to see him than it is to see us. And actually, the way, when we, when we see him as bigger, um, we start to see ourselves truly for who we are. Like, we, we see um, ourselves clearer when we see him clearer. And so, this morning, I feel like the text, um, 1 Timothy, um, gives us some insight on how we should see ourselves as believers. How, how should we look at ourselves? What is our identity? Um, not to further perpetuate our propensity for introspection, but, but it, it really does talk about who we are, who we are in God, in Christ. So just to review, like I said, uh, you know, listen to the message last week if you haven't had a chance. But just, just by way of review, and then we'll, enter, we'll, we'll dive into this passage. First Timothy is about instruction for the building of the church. Uh, it's a pastoral letter. Um, one of three that Paul has written, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Um, and it's, it's directed mainly at Timothy as an elder of the Ephesian church. However, as Dan said, it's meant to be read among the church members. The last sentence of 1 Timothy says, grace be with you, that you is a plural you. So it's, this is not just a personal letter to Timothy. It's a, it's a letter to be read amongst the brothers and sisters at the church. Um, and so it's for y'all. I, I, I told the pastors this week in a meeting that I wish, I, I wish we had a y'all Bible, um, uh, the y'all translation, because there's so many yous in scripture that are meant to be y'all, not, not you, not you individually. They're, they're meant to be taken by us as a church, and so that's what, how First Timothy is supposed to be taken. So anybody who wants to work on the y'all Bible, um, I will buy, I'll be the first one to buy a copy. Um, Paul's purpose in writing the letter is stated, as Dan said last week, in uh, chapter 3, 14 through 16, 
um, and this is what it is. Uh, uh, he's writing these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, Paul says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. So this letter is filled with instructions for how people, men, women, leaders, non-leaders, people of different social status are to behave in the church, the household of God. Um, and we'll see it all over in the coming weeks. Just like you have rules for your household. I was thinking of rules when I was growing up in my household, like every drink has to have a coaster under it. Uh, you can't light the decorative candles, only the non-decorative candles. Um, in the bathroom, there's certain towels for using and certain towels for just looking at. Um, I don't know if you guys had that. Um, uh, take your shoes off the door. Some people have that rule. Um, no TV before, before homework. Only five Netflix episodes in a night, um, not six. <laughs> So um, Paul lays out the behavior for God's household, the church. But we'll see in this morning's text that he takes a break from that, actually. And he just gives his, his story, his testimony, right in the middle of all the instruction. He, he just, he, he, he reminds Timothy, I'm sure Timothy heard many times of Paul's story of his conversion on the road to Damascus. And we'll read that this morning. Um, and he, so he takes a break and then he goes back in an instruction, we'll see. So let's, let's dive right in, um, and we'll unpack this passage verse by verse, and then we'll um, see how it impacts maybe the way we should see um, ourselves in light of who God is. So verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. This phrase, judged me faithful, this is not a picture of God looking at Paul and determining that he was worthy based on all his qualifications. That's not where the judgment came from. It's not a determination of what is already there, but what could be there. This word, um, this word here um, means he supposed him faithful or worthy. Just like when God looks at us as righteous, when in fact we're not, um, when we still sin. But we are, but we're not. You know, he looks at us that way. He, we, we have been imputed with Christ's righteousness. He looks at us that way. That's the same thing. He supposed Paul to be faithful, but the word also means to lead in the sense that God made him to be faithful. Saw a potential in Paul uh, because God was going to do a work in Paul's life so that he would be faithful. God's doing it in Paul. Verse 13 and 14. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking of the sin of his former life before Jesus invaded his life. And so I know it's a familiar, familiar uh, story, but I want us to read it. I want us to remind ourselves of what that true story of that conversion of Paul was. And, and you know, this is like, if you turn back in Acts 9 in your, in your analog or your, uh, your digital Bibles, um, or they'll be up on the screen, Acts 9, chap, uh, chapter 9, 1 through uh, 20, I think. We're going to read the story of Paul's conversion. The quintessential, like, it, a conversion should look like this, uh, from black to white. I mean, it just this amazing testimony that really happened. So just to remind us, that, just so we could frame the rest of our text this morning. So read along with me. Acts 9, um, chapter 1, how Saul became Paul. But Saul, 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, and I love that term for Christians, right? People belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the, straight, the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And I just pause here. Like, you know, I've heard this story. We've all heard it many times if you've grown up in the church. And I, def I just never got the weight and gravity of who Saul was before he was converted. That he was this bad dude. I mean, he, he um, in the in a sense of, a, he was like the rock star of all Jew, Jew, Jewish Pharisees. I mean, he was, he was um, known everywhere. He was very zealous. Um, many people knew about this guy. They were afraid of him. He had a huge impact. And I just never really, like, let that sink in. This guy was known, and, and people were freaked by this guy, that he would be in his city. So here's Ananias' response. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, from many, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And look at this response. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Havoc, that, that word means just like widespread uh, uh, just destruction of the church who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. What an awesome true story. Awesome true story of conversion, what God can do in a person's life. Verse 13, he says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul meant well when he was trying to snuff out Christianity. He meant well. 
He thought he was serving God. He thought he was serving Yahweh, his God. I can imagine that he thought he was like a Joshua, maybe, committed to eradicating the land, the promised land of Canaanites. Maybe he kind of took that upon himself. Thought he was really serving the Lord, our Lord, Yahweh. His, his Lord, Yahweh. He thought he was serving him. However, for however much zeal this man had, he was wrong. And you got to admire his zeal. Gent- uh, Galatians sorry, uh, 1.14 says, And I was advancing in Judaism, Paul says, beyond many of my own age among people, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my, father, my fathers. But in his zeal for Yahweh, he was ignorant. And actually going against the very God he was trying to serve. Yet God was merciful. He, he was merciful because he knew Paul was acting in, in ignorance, in a sense. Because he was acting in ignorance. And, and do, you, do, you guys, do you guys know people who are lost in your lives, um, who, who if only they turned their lives over to God, um, they would just be these amazing, amazing saints and servants of the Lord, of the kingdom. You know people who have so much, maybe zeal already, um, believer, uh, unbelievers who, who have so much potential, who have great, these amazing personalities and so much to offer, and if only they would turn their lives over to God, like, they could just do these amazing things. You know people like that? I know people like that, and, and it's just, sometimes it's just like, oh, if only, and, and I just want to encourage you, let, let Paul encourage you, don't give up on them. Tell them the good news of a father who loves them. God can change them. He might do it. He might do it. Let this encourage you. What was the nature of Paul's sin when we look at it? What was the nature of it? What was he saying? It wasn't against the law. It was against the person. If anybody, if anybody could be, if it could be said of anybody in Paul's day that this person upheld the law better than anyone else, it would have been Paul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says other places. Uh, a Jew of Jews, studied under Gamaliel, the, the Yoda of, of Jewish law. Like, he, he studied under him. He, he, he was, uh, Paul was brilliant, a brilliant man. Um, so his sin, he, he confesses, wasn't against the law. It was against a person. Look at it. He spoke blasphemy, it says, against Jesus, verse 13. A blasphemy means he's abusive and railing against, speaking evil of. He was a persecutor. The only verse in the Bible where this word is used, it has a verb. It means to put to flight, to drive away, to pursue. He was an insolent opponent of a person. Uh, who, one, who, one who is uplifted with pride is what that means. Either heaps insulting language upon others or does them some shameful act of wrong. Paul's sin was against the person of Jesus. Paul persecuted, abused, spoke against, insulted, shamed, and drove Jesus away. And that's what Paul is really confessing here about who he was before. That song we sing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, there's a line that says, It was my sin that put him there on the cross. That's what Paul is saying. His sin was against Jesus himself. It was his sin that persecuted Jesus on the cross. Just as every believer in this room can say the same thing. That's why we sing that word, uh, that song. It, w- it was our sin that put him there. It's not our sin against people. It's our sin against Jesus himself. We persecute him when we sin. Paul did it all ignorantly, though. He made a mistake. He was faithless. So in verse 12, it says, Jesus counted and judged Paul faithful when and while and during the time he was acting faithless. 
in verse 13. Jesus judged him the opposite of what he was, faithful when he was faithless. How does Jesus do this? Why would he do this? It's the same reason he would look at you as righteous when you're not. Same reason he'd look at me as righteous when I'm actually sinful. Verse 14, this is why grace. Grace. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I love the outline of biblical usage. Uh, you see that in Blue Letter Bible. If you use that, um, they, they, they put excerpts of that book, outline of biblical usage. And the way they describe grace is this way. The merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, and increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the, exerci- to the exercise of the Christian virtues. This grace that Paul is referring to was exceedingly abundantly uh, poured out to him. The only place this word is used in the Bible is right here, overflowed. It means overflowed, coming, coming out like in abundance. Just like when Jesus poured the water and uh, changed the vessels of, of water into wine and it was like way more. It's just abundant. That's who, that's what, that's who God is. Um, the only t- that's the only time. So as so we look at this grace overflowed, it's accompanied by what? It came out of the faith and love in Christ Jesus, it says. What does that mean? That as we've established, it wasn't Paul, Paul's faithfulness that Jesus saw to count him faithful. But it was out of Jesus' own faithfulness that gives to Paul out of grace. That he gives to Paul out of grace. Why does Jesus give Paul the gift of his own faithfulness when Paul was acting out of faithlessness? And the only reason can be love, right? There's, there's, the only reason is love. He did it in love in Christ, it says. Unconditional, unmerited, a choice of God. Jesus chose Paul because he wanted to. Seems kind of simple. It's a truth that, like, if, if the simple truth that the reason, if you are the Lord's, the reason he chose you is because he wanted to. He didn't have to. He wasn't compelled to by your goodness. He chose you because he just wanted to. That's an amazing truth. Like, think about it. Why would he want to? Like, why does he love me? It should blow us away every time we think about it. Um, It doesn't, by the way, every time I think about it. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But every once in a while, it's like, wow, he just wanted to choose me? There's no other possible explanation, not because of Paul's adherence to the law or his ignorant zeal for the name of Yahweh, but Jesus appointed Paul because he knew his own faithfulness was enough, his own obedience to the Father was enough, his own adherence to the law is enough, his own zeal to eradicate sin and faithlessness was all that was needed, and he could strengthen Paul because of his faithfulness, not because of Paul's faithfulness. In the infinite wisdom of God, from before all time, God had already chosen Paul to be his instrument to reach the Gentiles. I'm going to quote this verse a couple times. You can turn to it if you want, but uh, you'll you'll hear it a couple times. Galatians 1, 15 through 16, Paul describes his own conversion, and this is what he says. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. Why? So that in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul's words, he chose me, set me apart before I was born. Verse 15, we'll go back to that. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. What does that mean? Paul uses this phrase um, several times 
in the pastoral letters. Chapter 3, 1, he uses it. Chapter 4, 9, 2 Timothy 2, 11, and Titus 3, 8. The word saying, the, the saying is trustworthy. The word saying is logos, which means word. So Paul is not, you know, quoting uh, Old Testament passage here. He is, he's giving uh, Timothy a word from the Lord, like a word to, to hang his hat on, a word to encourage him, um, a proverb, an axiom. Uh, just like you would say, like, good word if someone, if a brother or sister says something, uh, a word from the Lord uh, out, of, out of Scripture. Um, that's what it is. So Timothy, be encouraged by this. This is a principle you can trust in. That's what it means. And here it is. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's no one else to save. That's all there is. So the good news today is that if you are a sinner, you can be saved. You don't have to be lost anymore. Illegitimate anymore. As long as you have your sin to bring to him, you're in luck. He can save you. Just lay it before his feet. Surrender it to him, and he can take it all from you. He already did on the cross. Do you believe it? That he could save you? The bad news is, is that if you're not a sinner, you can't be saved. If you're a pretty good person and you're wondering if you have enough good stuff to bring to him in order to be saved, sorry, you can't be. You can't be saved. You're not a sinner that way, right? If, if, you're, if you're wondering if it's been long enough since your last sin, the last time you lied or cheated or looked at porn or whatever so as to get God to like you enough, sorry, you're not bad enough. Only sinners can be saved. Good people can't be saved. He can only take your sin from you, not your goodness. Besides, if, if you're good, you don't need saving anyway, right? He's looking for sinners, not you. God is gracious. He'll let you try and make it on your own if that's what you want. He'll let you try. He'll let you try to be good enough on your own. But here's the really good news. If you're in the second group, you're delusional. And you actually are a sinner. And you actually can be saved. The really good news is that there are no good people. Therefore, all people can be saved. Because all people are under sin. The law can't protect you. Your goodness is actually pretty bad. So you're in luck. You are a sinner. And you can, in fact, be saved. Do you believe that Jesus can take your sin? That it was your sin that held him on the cross because he doesn't want your goodness. He wants to give you his goodness. Many of us in this room have already come to that conclusion. Praise God. And we're saved. He saved us because we brought our sin to him, not our goodness. And Paul got it. And he says this of sinners of that category. He says, I am the foremost. I am the chief. This is the conclusion that Paul came to. See, Paul was a Pharisee. And Pharisees used this term sinner for those who they thought were outside of the law, right? Outside of God's favor, outside of his promises, the wicked people. And, and it was a dirty word, you know, like it's a word, a derogatory term. It was like a curse word, a word of prejudice and scorn for those who weren't as good as they were. And, you know, uh, it, it came to be a self-righteous term. In Luke 7, you'll remember a Pharisee asked Jesus, why do you eat with sinners? When he saw a prostitute eating with him. In Luke 19, the Pharisee said Jesus was going to eat with a sinner. 
Zacchaeus. Paul, as a Pharisee, would have been used to using that term for so many other people, for the ones he was trying to arrest, the people who were associated with the way, the Christians. They were sinners. Paul would never have associated with that term before himself. He was the law keeper. But here we see Paul say with boldness, not only am I a sinner, but I'm the chief one. I am the chief of all sinners. I am the biggest sinner. It was a popular reality show that day, The Biggest Sinner. He, he won the first season, um, actually. Verse 16, verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Those who would believe because of his testimony, that if, if God had such, this is, the, this is the word, this is the testimony, if God had such, a pa- such patience with this man who was an enemy, how could he not have patience with you? That's the testimony of, of Paul. Like that's, that's God's grace on display in Paul. That's what he's saying. That God would set Paul apart before, the, before he was born, remember that Galatians passage, but when he who set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. He revealed his son in me so that in order he might preach him among the Gentiles. Because if he could save Paul, he could save anyone. God saw the whole thing. God knew Saul would be the zealous Pharisee guy who would persecute the church and ultimately him. Yet he chose him anyway before he was born to be a servant for the gospel to reach the Gentiles. God is patient because he sees the outcome when, when we don't, and he's sovereign over the outcome. We as parents want our kids to get what we're saying to them now. Now, not, not, like, not like then, or when we look at the timeline of our kids, we want, we, we want to determine this is their point of salvation, this is the point where they get a job. That's, you know, we, 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 we want to determine like that, and, and you know, God's now for them might be like a year from now, but we want the now to be now. But God sees it, and he's patient because he sees it, and we need to trust him. He's patient. He's patient. He has the plan. He has it, he has it in mind. Do we trust him with it? Do you know people who seem to be uh, lost and so blinded that, and so self-focused they seem irredeemable? Have you ever met an irredeemable person in your mind? Like, they're so far gone, they're living so against God, there's just no hope. Don't give up on them. Let this encourage you. Love them. Tell them the good news of the Father over and over again. Tell them the, a Father who loves them. God can change them. He just might do it. Be patient, because God certainly is. Let this encourage you. Have you been praying for a lost person that just seems irredeemable, and you're at the point with the psalmist, like, how long, O Lord, how long? God is patient. Look at Paul. Let him encourage you. Verse 17. What's Paul's response to remembering his story? What does Paul's remembrance of the grace, mercy, love, faithfulness, and patience of Jesus towards him cause him to do? Worship. Worship. Verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It just kind of pours out of him, I believe. I can just see that. Just talking about his story just causes him to worship. We'll get back to that in a sec. Verse 18 through 20. Then, after Paul takes this break 
after this doxology he gives, he goes back to the instruction. 18 through 20. He goes back to the instruction for the church. Takes this little testimonial break, and he goes back. And, 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 and so, um, verses 18 through 20. We'll look at that. Um, so, to remind you, verses 5, what we did last week, and verse uh, 18 are bookend verses. They're parallel. Verse 5, to remind you, it says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Verse 18 through 19a says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies uh, previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So you have to ask what prophecies were made about Timothy. It doesn't mean there's an Old Testament passage that said, spoke of Timothy someday. Um, to get clues here, we have to look at other, other passages in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. In, in chapter 4, 14, we get a better clue of what Paul is saying. He says to Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And then in 2 Timothy 1, 6, we see that Paul was one of those elders laying hands on Timothy. He says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So just like when John became a pastor here, and I, and, and Pat, and Dan, I wasn't here when Dan became a pastor, but I know that um, elders come around, and they lay hands on this, this would-be elder after the body, you know, does their thing, and, and approves him, and, 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 and it's all, it's all like, not votes, but never mind. Uh, they lay hands on him, and and that's what that's what we talk about. Timothy and in Ephesus had hands laid on him by elders to commission him. And Paul's reminding Timothy, remember, remember that Timothy. Like let this be an encouragement to you that you had this commissioning from God to shepherd this body, and you're waging a good warfare. And so remember that you were called to this. Remember that you have people laying hands on you to commission you for this. That's what this. I believe is saying, we don't know exactly what the gift meant, like if he has a special spiritual gift um, that was acknowledged there, but that's what it was. It was an encouragement from Paul. Remember that, to wage the good warfare. The war is against false teaching, right? We saw that last week. Heresy, vain debates, discussions, as Dan discussed last week. Verse 6 and 19 are also parallels. Look at those. Verse 6 last week, I'll remind you, said, certain persons by swerving from these, namely a good conscience, and a sincere faith have wandered away. Verse 19, by rejecting this, what? Faith and a good conscience, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Parallel verses. And then Paul calls them out. We see in verse 20, he said, uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander. We don't know much about these guys, but we know um, that they had false teaching, and we do know a little bit. 2 Timothy 2, 17 through 18 talks about Hymenaeus, and it says this. Their talk Paul says, spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus, who, who have swerved from the truth and say that the resurrection has already happened. That was their heresy. If someone came in and said, the resurrection has already happened, how, how many of you would believe that? Like, didn't you think that your resurrection body would be, maybe, maybe have a better metabolism? Or maybe uh, you didn't have this flaw or that flaw, you know? Um, but for some reason, because of the way this is insidious, people were believing that the resurrection had already happened, and, and they were leading people astray. And so there's a war going on. People will believe what their itching ears want them to hear. And, um, and then Paul calls out Alexander in 2 Timothy as well. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message, and this is why it's war. 
people with their own agendas who don't do what they do out of love for the saints, but love for themselves, distort the truth. So what's his solution? He says this, I have handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's church discipline. That's church discipline is what he's talking about. We can't deep dive into that, but I just want to, I want to make note of a couple things with church discipline, what he's talking about here. Number one, church discipline is always done with the hope that the ones disciplined might repent and come back to be restored, that they might be restored. There's not a period in the sentence, if you notice, after Satan. There's a part afterward, and, and said, Paul says, that they might learn. There's hope that they will change, hope for restoration. Number two, church discipline is done to protect the body and uphold the truth of God's word. Timothy is at war. He, he is charged to love the body at Ephesus through the laying on of hands and protect them as their shepherd. Part of that protection is the removal of wolves. Leaders who don't have love as their motive, they're to remove those people who are spreading heresy there was a sexually immoral man in the Corinthian church, and you might remember Paul writes to the Corinthian church another letter, and in 1 Corinthians 5, um, but this, this man who, who was called out claimed to be a believer, claimed to be in the Lord, and this is what, and, and, we, and as far as we know, Hymenius and Alexander also claimed to be in the Lord. Um, we don't know whether they were or not, but they were proposing, pur purporting that they were believers. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 these words, you are to deliver this man, that, that sexually immoral man, over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Just hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And this speaks of the restoration of that man. And then he says later, he says, your boasting is not good, church. Do you not know that a little leaven, that means yeast, leavens the whole lump of dough, cleanse out the old leaven, and again, this speaks of protection for the body. That's the text this week. Kind of jumps around. There's a testimony in there, and then there's more instruction. And so for the rest of our time, just in conclusion and, and just kind of wrapping, like, I have a question um, of the text. And, and hopefully this, this, is, this is the main question I had as I was approaching it this week and trying to answer and um, seeing it there. And I, the question is this, um, why did Paul take time? to tell his conversion story in the middle of instructing Timothy all this stuff about the behavior of the church. You know, remember the stated purpose of the letter of Timothy is I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Why did Paul take this testimonial break? Why did Paul spend time in the midst of this instruction to, Tim to Timothy to remind him of his story that I'm sure he knew pretty well? And I believe, I believe this is what it's about. Uh, I believe it was to remind Timothy what it's all about, what it's all for, all this church stuff. What is all this instruction for the behavior and conduct of the church for if what happened to Paul isn't the reason? If this can't continue to happen, what's it all for? If lives can't be changed, if sinners can't become saints, why behave in the church anyway? Paul's reminding Timothy of the hope that is in the message of this gospel, of the glory of the blessed God in verse 11, and of God the Savior, verse 1. If God can change Paul, then he can certainly change anyone. 
that's what it's about. Paul was changed from someone who was willing to kill in the name of Yahweh to someone who was willing to die in the name of Yahweh, God. From a killer to a dyer. From someone who lived out the law as closely as anyone could, could to someone who had the law written on their heart. If that's not what this household, this Windsor Community Church household of God is all about, then let's fold. Let's, let's close our doors. We don't need another club to join. There are plenty of organizations out there uh, to join that are doing good things. Um, if what happened to Paul can't continue to happen to others through the ministry of this particular household of God, then let's disband and join a CrossFit gym, and we'll all feel like we're accomplishing something that way. We'll see results. Or let's join some political activist group, and maybe I'll feel, we'll, we'll feel like we're getting results that way. If we don't actually believe Paul's story can happen now, today, here, then, then that's all we are as a glee club. Getting together, trying to behave like we think Christians ought to behave, dress up, sing songs, talk about the Bible, go home, eat, watch Netflix, and do it again next week. I think there's at least two reasons, at least, there's more, I'm sure, why we may be tempted to not believe that Paul's story could actually happen today, now. Life can be, lives can be transformed today. And one of those possible reasons, I believe, is for not believing that this kind of transformation can happen in someone's life is that it because it hasn't happened to you. Maybe it's because it hasn't happened to you yet. You haven't known God the way Paul knows him. When was the time in your life where God's love, his mercy, his grace, his patience with you on display in your life caused you to just pour forth in worship? Out of his infinite love caused you to just pour out like, like verse 17, like Paul did. You couldn't just help, you couldn't help yourself and just proclaim, God, you are the king of kings. Your grace is amazing. When you sing on Sunday mornings, is it out of what he's done and wrought in your life? Are those words, words that you identify with? And if they're not, then it's hard to believe that lives can be transformed this way. It's hard to believe. When you saw what he brought you from and what he brings you to, that you have to just pour out and worship. Have you ever seen God, your Savior, that way, through the work of Jesus Christ, saving you, a sinner? If you haven't seen God that way, then you, like Paul, have scales on your eyes and and. and and you, you can't see. And you're acting in ignorance without even knowing it. You're here to be in a club. It's cool. You feel better. Uh, you're taking your family here because it seems healthy, traditional. It's better than nothing. It's better than being on the street, right? But if you don't think God can do this to someone today, then maybe it's because you don't think he can do it in your life. But he can He can. He really can, and he, I, I know he wants to. Do you believe that? Will you believe that? Another possible reason why we may not think that this kind of transformation is possible is because we actually don't believe it has happened in our own lives, and I'm talking to believers. Believers. Christians. If you identify, if you, if you identify as a Christian, if you have put your life and faith and trust in, in Jesus, um, you surrender to him, um, sometimes, do you, do you actually believe that a transformation has happened in your life? Do you live that way? I know I, I sometimes just, I, I know it, but I don't 
behaviorally live it out. So that, I mean, there are those here who actually don't see a whole lot of transformation in their lives, maybe. Is that you? Have you been transformed like Paul? Has it happened to you? You actually live in such a way that reflects your belief that you are a new creature? The old is gone, the new has come. And I'm not saying, like, you know, you need to have a conversion experience like Paul's. It doesn't have to be, like, this amazing, like, you were addicted to tra- a crack and now you're not. And, and, like, this black and white. Like, if, God, if you are God's, you've been transformed from the old to the new, from the old creature to a new creature. You are set free. Um, do you believe it? Do you actually believe that? Because I see Christians around me who don't look like they do. Myself included. So how are we to see ourselves? That's the question. Um, how are we to look at ourselves? What is our identity in, like, how does this passage inform that based on the passage? For some of us here, we think we're good. We're still under the delusion that we can muster up some kind of goodness that will make us acceptable to God so that we can get our heaven pass. If that's you, then you need to hear this. You desperately need to see yourself as a sinner lost with no hope of any kind of your own goodness that gains you any kind of anything. Because remember, Jesus came to the world to save sinners, not good people. He can't take your goodness because it's really not good. All he can take from you is your sin. And for other, others of us here, we dwell too much that we're sinners, believers. We've been redeemed, we've been saved, but our speech, our attitude is that we're just sinners not saints. We focus too much on what we've been saved from and not what we've been saved to. We can tend to focus on the sin we've been saved from, the hell we deserve, which, and hear me, we need to understand that, right? And that's the beginning. We need to get that. But if we camp there, if we stay there, um, we, we all need to get that, but if we stay there, um, and we all need to get that this amazing grace of God has saved us from what we deserve. But if we stay there just amazed at what we've been saved from and hardly believing it's true sometimes, we'll miss out on the more amazing truth of what we've been and who we've been saved to. The real good news of the gospel is not that we can dwell on all the sin and punishment that we've been saved from, but rather that we can dwell on the one who saved us from it. The gospel isn't just a gospel of mercy. It is, but it's more. Not just a gospel of not getting what we deserve. It is that, but it's more. Mercy is a good place to start, but the gospel is also a gospel of grace. A gospel of, of not, uh, a gospel of getting what we don't deserve, namely God. The most amazing thing about our justification is not that we've been commuted of a death sentence by a judge, but that the judge himself wants us to climb up into the, the, the judge's booth and embrace us in his arms and take us home with him to adopt us as sons and daughters forever in his embrace, forever in his presence. That's what is amazing about justification is that the judge just doesn't want to just take us out of a prison cell and just go be free. He's like, he wants to take us out of a prison cell and bring us to himself. The judge wants us. That's what's amazing. That's the good news. It's not just mercy. It's grace. It's not what we've just been saved from, but it's what we've been saved to. 
I hear too often from saints a focus on our identity as sinners. And it seems sometimes the best we can do for each other, the best we have to hope for as a bunch of sinners is we're trying to hold each other up and keep each other from sinning. But is that what Jesus died for? To keep us from sinning? Yes, but that's not it. That's not all. That's the beginning. Or to bring us to himself, to the Father, to bring others with us. Look at what Paul does here. How much time does he spend on himself? How much time does he spend dwelling on his sin of his past? He mentions it, talks about himself for the purpose of what? To show, I mean, what is the focus of this passage? It's God and his mercy, his love, his grace. And the only reason Paul would ever bring himself into it is that he, that God might be in display, on display in his life. And then he moves past it. He talks about God. He ends in this worship. He ends in this doxology. The, 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 the focus is not Paul's sin and the fact that he's a chief of sinners. The focus is of the Savior, the one who saved him from that sin. And we as Christians sometimes stay too far on this side of the pendulum, and we don't, we don't balance that. I, I notice that about me and all of us. But it's about him, his worship of him. First Timothy is a letter about the household of faith, the church. And how we should behave. So here's a question. In this household of faith, is the most we are going to shoot for is just a little less sin in our lives? Is that our highest achievement? Is that our best behavior? Or do we believe that the same kind of transformation we see in Paul can happen now? To us, to those we love, our believing neighbors, our spouses, our children, our friends, our co-workers. Can God still do this? Do we believe that? Is that what we can be about? May it be so. Let me pray and bring the worship team up. Dear Father, we, we just thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for what we see here. That, that you, if you can save Paul, God, you can save anyone in this room. And I pray for those who haven't seen your transformation in their lives today and maybe are just clinging to their own goodness in this room, I pray that you would convict them of their ungoodness, their sin, their, their, that they're not good enough. They can't withhold it. But Jesus, you, you bore it already for them, their sin on the cross. God, I pray for that belief. I pray that people would believe that here. And if for those of us who are already believers and, and we're just struggling with just our past and the sin and, and, and just what, what we deserve and what we deserve and what we deserve and we don't think about what we get in you, um, Lord, enough. Help us, help us with that, Lord. Help us worship you and praise you because of who you are, um, not just what you've saved us from, but what you bring us to. Help us, Lord. We need your, we need your grace. And so be glorified, Lord, as we sing. Pray this in your name.